Live from the Voodoo Rooms at the Edinburgh Fringe, it's the Voodoo Varieties with Matt Ricardo. Now, this episode has a theme. Three interviews with performers who have all started out as street performers, but have then gone on to very different things afterwards. First, we talk to stand-up comedian Stu Goldsmith. Then, one of the stars of Variety, the boy with paper on his face. And finally, we chat to the leading lady of British cabaret and sideshow, and one of the last surviving female sword swallowers, Misbehave. Hope you enjoy it. So I've known you for... How long have I known you for? Well, straight in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. How long? I came to Covent Garden about, I think, ten years ago, but I think I've been saying ten years ago for a few years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so a little while. And um, when you first arrived as a street performer, oops, um, I uh, intensely disliked you. Um, Did you really? Yes. Oh, God, yes. Okay. Um, but I, 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 I dislike most people. I'm not a happy man. That no, is true, actually. That yeah, is true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Feels weird you, made, you made a good show of not appearing to this night being really? I quite liked you. I thought we got on. Oh, no, of course. Of course you like me. I'm adorable, but okay, I didn't you. like you. Um, that's how I like things. <laughs> no, um, because you, in your show, in, in, in your solo, because you've been talking about your double act, but in Covent yes. Garden you came, I think you come with your solo. Yes, actually, after, after the double act, that's when I, look, we were in Manchester and I moved down to London to do Covent Garden. So yes, yeah, I didn't show. see your double act for quite a few years yes. after that. So your solo show, you did so little in it. Mm-hmm. You know, because I'm a monkey who just does tricks and tricks yes. and tricks and tricks and tricks. And you, your props was a, a rope and a packet of crisps. Yes. So I hated you because I, you didn't... I, you I, had to carry trolleys around. I carry a fucking table with me. Yeah. My, my, my street performing show involves a dining table. <laughs> which was a stupid idea. But it does guarantee nobody will rip off that trick. Absolutely. Only yes. I will carry a table with yes. me. And I remember the day technology moved on and you turned up with a Japanese folding collapsible oh, picnic table. Man. With a little smile on your face. Amazing. And there's only one company makes them. And I've got eight in my loft. Because <laughs> at some point they'll stop making them and then I'm completely screwed. Yeah. Um, so... I think pretty much as soon as you started working the street, I pegged that you were going to be a stand-up because okay. most of your street show was was using the tools of the stand-up. It was using That's wit so and sort of. I hate to say that you had this charisma. Charisma. <laughs> <laughs> I hate even more that you said it. Before <laughs> I did. Yeah. I, well, it's what people point out in reviews. They say I'm charismatic of my stand-up. I always get charisma and I get slick. Very rarely do I get funny. Or any variant thereof. Yeah. I mean, I you know I can say I can't look at you with hundred percent confidence and say I am funny, but I can look you in the eye and say I am fucking charismatic. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. I'm not, not necessarily in a way that will make people like me listening to me explain that, but I've bloody got it. <laughs> See, I, I I've always said that charisma is is a learned skill because okay. I think when I I'm not saying that I'm massive massively charismatic, but I think I you know I can hold my own a bit. And I think when I arrived on the street, I what really wasn't. I was very shy and very maladjusted. I think that thing that makes people look at you and trust you and like you on stage, yes. I think you can learn it. And I think the street is a really good place to learn it because you have to convince people to do that. I think so. And I think also, uh, because of the nature of my double act, I, <laughs> this will come as no surprise probably, but like Penn and Teller, we nicked the idea of Penn and Teller, my double act partner, Noel, never spoke. And that was largely because when he spoke, he was sort of very hesitant. And you need, I felt, you need confidence and dynamism to gather a crowd. And Noel, I mean, he's a solo student for now, he's very good. But back then, he's very, he's not little at all, the thing to me. But he's very, he's, and he is charismatic in his own way, but he doesn't 
have that glib. I'm super glib. I've always got something to say. I can answer any, you know, bam, bam, bam. Yeah. And, and I could be bad like this. And Noel would always kind of be like, uh, yeah, we'd like you to, um, could you, uh, if there was a, and people would walk away. And so I said, here's, here's an idea now. Why don't we be like Penn and Teller? And you never say anything. And then that, it was, it was criminal of me. It was awful. But it did mirror our true life relationship. We've been best mates since we were 11 by the time, we, you know, with five years by the time we started treatment for him. But it, it did mean that he grew into a fabulous silent clown and I grew into a professional talker. And I think that was a sort of a circular process whereby we did that because we're naturally like that. And doing that because we were naturally like that made us become more like that. Yeah. So then when I came to Covent Garden, I was a glib talking. I could do this. I did a corporate recently where they said, then you come out still and you do the happy talk. Like that, and that's, <laughs> that's it. I can do the happy talk, but I came there as a person who could do the happy talk without a silent clown buddy. Yeah. I, was, I was half a double act. And I felt that very keenly. And I had to go out and blow that, you know. Mm. And, and when you developed the solo show, was it a conscious choice to, to not use many props and sort of absolutely, absolutely. Work, work that muscle? Yes, of, because of using them out? I, didn't, I don't think at the time I thought I was going to be a stand-up. I didn't know what I was going to be. But I'd always felt like... I loved, I loved tricks. I love tricks, man. I love, I love watching them. Mm. And I love doing stuff. And I love the incredible satisfaction you get. And for non-jugglers or non-trick performers, it's like... It's like when you, there's a, you're in your office and there's a bin over there and you go, well, if I get this in, I'm allowed extra lunch break. And you go, and it goes in. And you go, oh my God. It's that feeling, that satisfaction is <laughs> nodding there like it, oh, yeah. blank. Um, I, I think, to me, there's just something about it. When you, get a, when you first spin a toothbrush from the bristles on your finger and go, and you learn how to do yeah. it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, some people are into girls. No, 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 no not us. Um, we, uh, mine seemed horribly inappropriate at the time. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yes, I, I enjoyed tricks very much. But equally, I think I knew on some level. I designed my show, designed it. I, I faffed around for three years with this basic coder in mind. I thought, what I want is a show that makes me a better performer. Because yeah. I don't think I'm going to be the world's best juggler ever. And as soon as I, I'm such a, a sort of perfectionist cock, as soon as I realise I can't be the world's best something, I stop doing it and change like, to, to like a right angle turn. Yeah. So I was a, a sort of circus person, a crap one, and I was a street performer and realised I was never going to be the best at that. And so then I became an actor and whoa, nowhere near a complete charlatan. <laughs> and then I became a stand-up. And then when I realised, it's a three-year process, I realised I'm never going to be the best stand-up, so I started doing a double-act sketch team. And then that kind of imploded a bit. I still love Richard very much, and we work together a lot, but... That stopped, and now I've only now, fortunately, before the wheels fall off and I go mental, have I realised I don't need to be the best at something. I am going to, as my CBT therapy guy would say, dare to be average. There you go. Yeah. Hey, CBT. Yeah. That CBT. Cognitive behavioural therapy as opposed to cognitive torture. Yeah, Whenever I was in therapy, he would say CBT, I'll giggle slightly. I believe it's also a comprehensive basic test for some motivation. So it's educational as well as nothing. Um, <laughs> so at what point did you decide stand-up? That the move from street to stand-up? I, I did my first ever stand-up gig eight years ago, 2005 is seven years ago, but I did one gig about a year before I properly started. Um, and I thought to myself, I can't not try this. I'd just given up being an actor. I did a long season away in the Lake District doing like a nine-month season, and it finished me off. I, you know, everyone else was kind of getting into character, and I was doing a crossword and living to unicycle in the break. And I just realised I just wasn't that into it, you know. And 
And like, I, I think as an actor, I wanted, oh yeah, man, I want to be, I want to be like a hero in a thing and run down a corridor against an explosion. But of course, actors don't get to be that person. They just get to pretend it seven times, and it's not the same. You know, you could, I was trying to be my dream, and acting, you can't be the thing. You can be a person pretending to it. Maybe that's your dream, and that's fine. Later on, I did get the opportunity to play the last man alive in a world full of robots on kids' TV, and I ran down a corridor away from the explosion, and the director deliberately stitched me up. He said to me before I did it, he said, um, just when you run, try and make it really big and action movie. So I did that, but he, he just told that to me, and then when I did it, he went, cut, can you run less like a twat? And he deliberately <laughs> like, made me do that, and then told me again. Um, I obviously forget the question. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Uh, no, it was the moving to stand up. Yeah, so the moving to stand up, so I thought, I've got to, I've got to try it once. Um, and I went and did a stand-up at the Blue Post in Kingley Street in Soho, and I did one gig, it was a five-minute set, and it was not good. And I remember, I'll never forget looking down and seeing my hand absolutely just trembling. I was so scared. And I came off stage and I thought, I found my thing. I found mm. it. And the headline of that night was a lady called Ava Vidal, who's a person on the British comedy circuit, and she, as I walked away, as I went down the stairs, she said, was that your first gig? And I went, yeah. And she said, you should stick at this. You've got a good look. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, and that was the beginning of the slick thing, where there's like, you know, yeah. It, slick, do you take slick as an insult? Because I've been called slick, and I think they It's mean good it for as, jugglers. Well, look, you're slick. Look at the shoes. Now, that's just flamboyant. Nah. Um, I, I, Pin I, could be flamboyant. I, Those are sharp as fuck. They're your schmick. That's what Australians call it, schmick. 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 And it's yeah, like the way you dress, it's like. It's like the dressing equivalent of getting the yeah. pool of paper in the bin. Schmick. Well, that's, like that. that's, my, that's my thing. You know, I, the, the reason I dress like this is a kind of partly because I'm inspired by these gentlemen jugglers from you know, the turn of the century, but also partly because when you say juggler to someone, they think of two things. They think of uh, a tattooed Australian with a chainsaw, or they think of Cirque du Soleil and spandex. Yes. So I like to dress as far away from that as possible. You know? Yes. And I yes. love suits. I got, totally I got a suit sponsor. I know. I saw a, a thing you put on Facebook. This is less interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, so yeah, I, I think people, I, I think critics often use slick as as an insult. Yes, I never felt it was used as an insult in any review of my, in any review. But well, you know, maybe once or twice. Unlikably cocky. That was <laughs> that was uh, Chawful, two thousand nine. I got. Um, I got. If I made um, the skinny last year, uh, a review of my one man show that was all about my twenty six year career as a juggler. The first sentence of the review: Being a juggler isn't really a job these days. Yeah, lovely. There we go. <laughs> Thanks for paying um, attention. <laughs> and so I don't. I think it's very rarely been used, like calculated to wound. Mm. But I do understand it because there is an instinct, like the instinct all those years ago, that told Noel to shut up and stop humming and ahhing. Who knows what a beautiful clown with voice that could have developed into? And I stamped all over it because I was nervous. I was desperate for people to approve. And I couldn't bear the thought of people not approving. And Noel and I would routinely, and I've not spoken about this before, we would every year we'd come up to the Edinburgh Festival, before we were professional full-time street performers, we would write a new show, get together for a week in Manchester, we'd write a new show like it was a theatre show. Because the thing about me and Noel was street performers, we'd never seen any street performers. We just started, we just started doing it. We never saw anyone, no one inspired us, we just did a thing and went, oh, it's like this. And then it became clear that it wasn't like that. And... um, 
we would write a new show, learn it. We did a thing once called Not the Monkey Brothers. We came out to Edinburgh and we had a whole show based on the premise that we were two escaped monkeys that were pretending to be human and kept nearly giving the game away. So ladies and gentlemen, we are the, mon- the Not the Monkey Brothers and we had tails coming brown suits and little Amish-like beards and, uh, and both had crew cuts at the time. We had little tails. We go, we're the monkeys. So you, you might have heard some reports about some escaped monkeys who got away from a lab. Put it, it's the furthest thing from your mind. And now, like, you know, and there was potentially... I really like that. Oh man, we did one show. Nicky Logan saw it. One show, that was it. I wish he'd taped it. Um, and then, we went to the meadows and I burst into tears because it hadn't gone well enough for me and I had a complete wig out and said we've got to go home we've got to ditch it we can't do it and Noel endlessly patient would listen as I wept and wept and he would go well let's just you know take out some of it and do the tricks and then that process we would do every year we'd write a new thing and I'd wig out and cry and couldn't cope with it and then in my defence I was no I was old enough not to um, and uh, and that's how the thing became so when I think that impulse to be slick what, I know what people mean You know, I, I feel like I can walk in, walk off get out of cab, be on stage a minute later and at least get away with it less so because I'm inherently funny and more so because I have some sort of quality that I've naturally had and also honed where I can kind of go like that and, I think, and I think, it's, I think it's having both I think you know, obviously you are inherently funny you are very good but I think it's it's Having that that talent and that skill set in the sort of wrapped in the package of the confidence slickness. Yes, I you know. do. However, think now I used to think that a, a past as a street performer was an amazing thing for a comedian to have, and now I don't think it is because I think you need to unlearn it. And I spent years on the street learning those things. But actually, stand up is less about transmitting and more about receiving. And I think street performing teaches you to transmit. And really, I keep having to unlearn all the pizzazz and the slickness. Uh, so I think that will be yeah. a lifetime journey. I've spent so much long. It was so important to me for so long. I think actually, really, as a comedian, what you need to be able to do is listen and and sort of invent and create. And that is almost the polar opposite of coming on and banging out a gag. Yeah. You know. And I like I did that story. I know that story that I did. I know it works. I came in here, I was nervous, there weren't many people, there didn't seem to be a lot of momentum in the room. I kept referring to I, you know, even when you started enjoying it, I kept saying it because I was nervous, you know, going, all that guy's not enjoying it. Ridiculous thing to say, to program you and him into the fact he's not enjoying it, it's insane. Um, but that bit of material is a sort of an old bit that I like, it's one of the few things that survived from previous shows, yeah. because it's a good story in its own right. But it's basically a good story because it's a funny thing that genuinely happened. And that gave me the confidence to write a load of jokes in the gaps. Yeah. Actually, what I'd like to be able to do is to come on, and what I should have done, arguably could have done tonight, is come on and go, hello, what's going on here then? <laughs> and do you know what I mean? And actually build from there. That would maybe have been good, but I still have a lot of those old instincts. When cornered, I go, bang, 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 bang. You know, and that's right. one kind of performance, but maybe not yeah. the, the best. I think, I think that shows that you're aiming to be a particularly sort of nuanced and sensitive kind of stand-up when, you know, because most stand-ups don't do that, they do just come on bang, 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 you know. Yes, I, yeah, there's a, yeah, yeah, they do. I, I think, um, I think when I got on stage and had a mic and a light and a raised stage in a room with a roof <laughs> after years of street performing, and I realised my favourite bits in stand-up are bits when I go, like I tell a story I've too long to go into, but I've got a little story and my favourite bit of that whole set was when I go... Again. 
And that you can't do on the street. I could never do on the yeah, street. Absolutely. Probably Tony living face can. I can Maybe, achieve yeah. that subtlety. Suddenly I can have that focus and I can just go, yeah. And, and it'd be funny, obviously it's not funny now, but in the context of the, the story, that I went, oh my God. Yeah. Oh my God. And these mics are great. You know, this, yeah. uh, you get a lot of shitty mics, you have to shout down them. But I love, and I think it's a reaction against all the time spent on the street, I love going, oh, that, I love it. I think we're going to have to wrap it up now. Yeah, man. Happy but to. Thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen. It's Jude Goldsmith. Thank you. Do you like to see the boy without the tape on his face? Yeah. Okay, let's do that then. Please re-welcome Mr. Sam Wills. I've, I've known you for a, a, a small handful of years. Um, and I know you as... Is this actually on? Yes. I know you um, as a obviously a cabaret performer, but before that a street performer. So I <laughs> really good interview, wouldn't it? Yeah, I did think of actually doing that for the whole thing. <laughs> not, not, not <laughs> I, I apologise for an easy on accent as well. Does uh, does ruin that? A lot of people get annoyed that I've got an easy on accent. Well, all, you are from New Zealand. Yeah, I know. That's you, the you, reason. You, some people actually think I'm French. Genuinely. Really? Yeah. Because stripes. you're a nice. Because you wear stripes. Oh, the stripes. The stripes equal French. Bonjour. Are you French? No. No, of course not. Okay. So, um, <laughs> so how did you get, you know, like I said, I know you from a few years ago to now. Yes. So t take me from, you know, birth up until a few years ago. Right up until a few years ago. Uh, I started out getting into this because I, I was homeschooled. I was a the naughty kid at school. And uh, so I got sort of kicked out of multiple schools. And then we ended up kind of moving town. And then in one town, when I was leaving, I uh, got given a going going away present uh, of a magic set. And so I learned uh, magic tricks. And so yeah, I was a magician kind of thing. So the first trick I ever learned was the multiplying balls and uh, linking rings and all that whatnot. And uh, after doing that for a, a couple of years on my own, I, I found out that there was a clown in our town. So I knocked on his door and I said, can I be your apprentice? And he said, okay, can I ring your parents? Uh, and my parents had to come over and they sort of had a chat and they decided that I would become an apprentice to a clown in, uh, in my local town. And uh, I, I was very excited because my older brother had a full-time job and uh, I was getting paid uh, twice his hourly rate. Which I was, <laughs> was for being a clown <laughs> that annoyed him knowing. Uh, and, uh, and so this clown, his name was Jaffa, and he, uh, I, I, he taught me all traditional clowning. So I had the blue wig, I wore the, the full clown pants and the face makeup and everything, and he taught me juggling and unicycling. Uh, but the other thing was because I was homeschooled, I said to my parents after doing a bit of clowning that I wanted to drop out of homeschool because I decided <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to do that anymore. And uh, my parents were really supportive, so they said to me if I, if I was going to be homeschooled and I wanted to, what did I want to do? And I said to them I wanted to be a juggler. And so they said, well, if you want to be a juggler, you have to have a juggling education. And so they, they made me learn every aspect of juggling. So I, I was taught cigar boxes, clubs, rings, Diablo, the whole shebang. And then my mum would make me Google and research where they all came from and the histories of further juggling bits and pieces. So juggling became my new mad passion, and I began focused on that. And then I learned that a couple of hours north from my small town was a circus school that was just starting out. And so I went up to the circus school and, and sort of auditioned, and they said, yeah, come on in. And so I, I majored in juggling. And so, because my dream was to be a juggler in Las Vegas. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Times have changed.
Uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, <laughs> the, uh, but yeah, I was, I was just madly focused on juggling and just learning all these different stunts and tricks and whatnot. And then through juggling, I, um, I, I studied at the school for two years as a major in juggling, minored in clowning and acrobatics. And uh, then after the school finished for two years, I ended up staying on for two and a half years teaching juggling. And, uh, and through that, I learned from another a Russian clown who taught me uh, how they teach circus schools in Russia. And so I, I learned more juggling techniques and different training techniques and different ways of learning good philosophy. All the time I was doing a, a little bit of clowning occasionally on the side. Um, then I got interested in the freak shows, because that, that was the next love of mine, is the, the Coney Island carny freaks, the most tattooed people and fierce people and sword swallowers and whatnot. So I wanted to learn all of that. I, I, I've attempted to learn sword swallowing four times and I uh, still have not got it. <laughs> but I, I, got, I got hooked with my nose, became my big trick. So I would, uh, I used to hammer, I still do, I hammer four inch nails up my nose. I um, snort. My, my biggest party trick was I would get the modelling balloons that clowns use and I would tie about 15 of them together and snort them out my mouth and cough, cough them out my mouth and then have two volunteers holding them like a clothesline and run up and down it. And, uh, that was, <laughs> hey! <laughs> that was the cute mime working out for you now. <laughs> and then I do another routine where I get a woman, a, a lovely lady out of the audience to hold a power drill and I would lower my face onto it, onto it, my nose and, and do all these odd circus sideshow stunts. And uh, I was doing this on the street, street performing, <laughs> to eclectic audiences. Uh, and and uh, one day I, I got a phone call from a comedian called Jared Christmas, who's doing pretty well over yeah. here at the moment. Uh, and uh, he, he ran a comedy club in Christchurch, and he ran, rang me in a mad panic saying, one of my comedians has dropped out, can you come down and do something? And I said, well, what do you want me to do? And so he just said, come down and bring some tricks. And so, okay, cool. Packed a suitcase and sort of, I suppose then I became New Zealand's first only prop comic. And so I was, I hit the stage with a suitcase and just went, here's a trick, here's another trick, here's a trick, here's a trick, and just trying to do some comedy in betweens. And, and then from there I, I got an audition onto a TV show which was the equivalent of um, Michael McIntyre, which was called Pop Comedy. And, uh, and then it just escalated. So I got into the comedy career and, and I sort of did this weird circus sideshow stand-up comedy for about seven, seven years in New Zealand. I ended up working in a casino for six years, doing a, a residency there at uh, Sky City Casino in Auckland where I was the host of a comedy variety show. And it, it was also nicknamed the Soul Destroyer. <laughs> <laughs> but it paid the rent. <laughs> So at what point did we get to the... The boy. The, the, yeah, the boy. The boy came about because I won, uh, I won an award in New Zealand called the Billy T. James Award, which was oh, he, he, yeah, yeah, he was the, the big comedy guy. And, uh, and so once I won this award for a show called... I did a show called Dance Monkey Dance, which was all how I, I felt like a dancing monkey on stage by putting all the stuff up my nose and doing these tricks for an audience. And no, oh, that was my lot. And, and then it, was, it just felt expected as though all I'm ever going to do is learn tricks and do dancing monkey stuff, and that was it. So I decided that I would surprise everyone and do a silent show and, and there'll be no tricks, no tricks, no talking. Because in my other show I talk a lot, I talk way too much. To, to the point where people can't understand me because I'm just going, ah, but I'm not so we're doing this Too much, too much high energy. So I wanted to do a show that had no talking, really low energy and no tricks. That was the main thing, I didn't want to do any sort of stunts. So, um, and so yes, I, did, I did worked on this little quiet character and, uh, and I went out on stage and wandered out with my idea of what was going to go on. Looked to the audience and just went, Good evening, how are you? <laughs> and ruined it. And so I rang the comedy club owner and said, Can I come back tomorrow night and give me another 10 minutes to try this out? And I came back and backstage, saw the roll of gaff tape, and it was more out of necessity 
then, uh, then actually an idea. And so I again the forced yourself to I be forced my mouth yeah. shut. So there was no option. So on stage, and then it just became this whole thing of when I came out, the audience went, "Well, you can't do stand up without talking." And and then it just became this thing of, "Well, I don't mind that the tape is there. I'm happy that it's there. It's no problem. It just stops me from ruining the show." <laughs> <laughs> And how long have you been doing The Boy? The Boy, uh, 2005. The show that was here in 2009, uh, so, and I did it last year as well, and I've just now finished its last tour. We have been touring it now in total for seven years. And it was the, to a degree, I was reaching that same point with that show of that repetition. Like, even though I'm getting volunteers up stage, it's still fresh. There's only so many things a volunteer can do, and I've seen them do all of them. <laughs> so in seven years, I've done the show quite a few times, so now I'm back with the new show, which is kind of exciting. Yeah, that's it's because it's new toys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> new toys. So what started out as a kind of necessity thing, just you talking... Over the years, you, you've worked into a, a very nuanced, sort of almost silent movie character. You know, it's, it's become a very sort of subtle clown. Yeah, it has, which is weird because I don't remember paying attention at the clown classes. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably I, a good thing. Yeah, it probably is, yeah. yeah. And, and I think also in some cases, I don't know in, in the training <laughs> sense of things when a lot of people said to me, I should go do workshops on this. And I think if I was to do something like that, I would probably ruin it. Because yeah. I think you have your natural instincts on stage of going, this is going to be funny if I do this, and I just do it. And then with the, the clowning side of things, because essentially it is, it's, it's just the red nose has slipped and just become this, this kind of black tape. So it's the same sort of thing. And then there's also that Chaplin reference of a moustache and also yeah. There are people out there who read way too much into it as well. <laughs> and, and, and these people who... I've had arguments with people who go, well, what's your backstory as a character? And it's like, I don't know, I don't have one. There's, there is no backstory, there is no whatnot. And, and then people get really frustrated with that, going, well, you have to have your motivation. It's like, no, I don't. And I think that's where the lazy street performer in me also comes out. <laughs> because you just go, well, it's just funny. It's, just, yeah. it's, not, it's not theatrical to that extent. And I think if it was theatrical to that extent, it would ruin it. It would become too easily criticised. Yeah, I just think, go, it's, yeah, you're reading I think what, what's good about it is it is simplistic. Yeah. Um, the, the, the goal for it, which has evolved for me as well, because the, it was originally a five-minute joke. The, the, the first sketch that I ever did was uh, the, the, it was a street performance trick, the milk crate stack, where you, you get milk crates and you stack them and you climb them and you get really, really high. And uh, the, the gag was I came out on stage with the tape on my face on the second night, looked up, and saw a set of scissors hanging from the roof. And so I did this stacking the milk crates, I finally got to the top, and I pulled out my own set of scissors to cut them down. That was the gag. And so it was a simple thing of acknowledging that I don't care about the tape. That was the first real... When I thought about using the tape, it was like, okay, let's focus on the tape. What's the punchline work with that? It's a really, really easy stuff. And again, the simplicity is also... uh, The goal now for me is to make the audience remember what it's like to be a child. I think that's the other key thing for me at the moment, this show. And, which is also why I encourage no children coming to the show. A lot of people get annoyed about that, because the show is it's accessible. It's like there's no, there's no swearing, there's no cultural references of, of war or terror or anything like that. But I find that if you do shows when there are too many children in the audience, it changes the mindset of, of adults, where you just go, oh, well, I, the kids are laughing, which means I'm watching a clown show, and, and it all sort of, the bubble pops, which yeah. does ruin it. And also, I think what's very interesting about the way you work is you do do so much stuff with volunteers, and and I usually really hate stuff with volunteers. I, I in, in my work, I've never used volunteers. I don't like to be near you people. <laughs> Stay back there. I start there. Um, but I, I just and as an audience member, I, whenever I see someone 
that I'm watching these volunteers, I just get the terror that don't pick me, so that's why I don't use them. And a lot of people use them for a cheap gag. Yes. You, know, you bring someone up and make them look foolish. Of course they can't do it make them, and then you send them back and it's, it's unpleasant. Yeah. But you, you're always very kind with your volunteers. You, there's someone told me once the rule was um, send them back a star. Yep, and you kind of always do. Yeah, they have to because without the volunteers I, I don't have a show. But like, the, the, the joke isn't on anyone. The joke is supposed to be a celebration of a silly idea and, and that's about it. And, and without, the, you know, without the audience I don't have the show. Yeah. And, and I want, and it's also breaking that tradition of, like you said, the cheap gag of come up here, look at this person, be an idiot. It's like everyone avoids the front row. <laughs> 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 Hello, the <laughs> way over there. Um, but but uh, there's a, it's that thing of audience participation. And stand up comedy is guilty of that as well. If you, know, if you sit in the front row, you are going to get, what do you do for a living? That's a crap job. You come from a crap town. Ha ha ha. <laughs> It's horrible. Yeah. Whereas it should just be, you know, enjoy the audience. The audience are there for fun, not for good. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, do you have any specific kind of uh, influences that silent performers that have informed what you do? Uh, it, again, I, I didn't really watch a lot of silent comedy until I started doing it, yeah. which is the thing. And, and my biggest influence, I would say, would be Buster Keaton. Because obviously the deadpan, just staring thing. Everyone thinks I should. The first association for silent comedy is Charlie Chaplin. And the more I've watched it of, of comparing uh, Keaton versus Chaplin, is that Charlie Chaplin is sneaky and he's a little thief. Yeah. He just he's naughty and he he will steal to get the breeze to give to the girl to win her over. Whereas Keaton will just go, oh well, my life is crap, and that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> and everything goes wrong for him. But he's kind of okay with that, and, and that's what I love about him. He's hard done by, but he doesn't really mind, which is nice. Yeah, so I'd say Keaton would be the biggest yeah. silent comedy influence. I agree. I, I love Keaton. And then unfortunately also the Mr. Bean reference comes up all the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But then he, the, when he, his face came up on that Olympic opening ceremony, it was like the crowd roared and you just, you've got to go, he's a national treasure. You know? yeah, he's weird, worldwide known for just being perfect. Yeah. Like that, face. When I work abroad, in, 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 he's massive in Europe. Oh, yeah. When yeah. I work in Europe, I get, oh, you're like Mr. Bean. Yeah. It's like, well, I'm nothing like this. I'm English. That's it, and that's it. That's enough. the only association. I've got a tie, yeah. just like Mr. Yeah. Bean. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I get it a lot when I'm working with developing ideas for various TV thingies as they go, we want to reinvent Mr. Bean. It's like, well, why don't we just make something new <laughs> rather than reinventing the old thing? Let's just do something different. So that brings us on to the perfect thing. What, what is next for you? Uh, next is I'm, well we're still developing more ideas for live shows I think for me live is the most important thing ever live comedy and live performance it has to everything I ever do uh, for TV always has to be encouraging an audience to go I like that I want to see that live because you really connect and you, and you get to be a part of the show I think that's the nicest thing I'm really interested in finding ways to do television where you connect with people uh, I did a, a show a few months back that involved Twitter which was really fun to do uh, yeah, yeah, I remember you tweeted in, so it's it was very, very funny. Uh, we uh, we uh, did a show which involved um, a, a massive Twitter war where the audience inside the venue were doing a quiz where depending on what they tweeted, the answer would come up onto a wall and sometimes the answer would mean either getting out of the audience to do something and then we had the rest of the Twitter land world in general tweeting in things to do with the show. So it became this kind of worldwide interactive thing. And I think also the way that TV's going with the whole red button and recording stuff, you, you, you're so interactive with it anyway. No one really watches live TV anymore. We wanna, you watch TV on your own time, so you're putting together your own programs. 
So I love the idea of being able to really touch the audience at home in a weird way. I don't know, is that yeah. wrong? No, well, <laughs> what exactly you mean yeah, by that? It's that? I think it's that way where the audience really can control the show that's on TV. I think that'd be really interesting. Cool. Yeah. So and also variety. I, I'd love to find another way to do variety on TV that isn't where we've got talent. Because that is the one thing that will kill what we do and love because it, it's yeah and, and you know I've had to tiptoe around conversations with various TV people when I've been going this is the proposal for shows this is what we want to do and in the back of my brain I know exactly what we're doing but if we say the variety word variety is a whole different time slot a different thing whereas we go it's a comedy show they go oh well that's going to be funded and work <laughs> <laughs> so how's the Edinburgh show going are you I, I mentioned you were sold out are you sold out uh, no. I think we're getting close Excellent. Which is pretty good. We just and we got five stars in total. First big day of reviews came out, so we had three five star reviews coming out today. Awesome. Three five stars in one day. Man. I had three five stars in 26 years of performing. <laughs> <laughs> well so, done. Yeah, I think, ladies and gentlemen, uh, one more time, Mr. Sam Wills, the boy we take on his Why Soul Swallow? Well, there was actually no rhyme or reason, really. I was burnt out after work, working in nightclubs. Um, I didn't know what to do, and I happened upon a book called Memoirs of a Soul Swallower, and I read it, and I had a relative death wish. I was about 17 or 18, and I thought, fuck it, that looks good. And I taught myself Soul Swallowing. So you taught yourself, and I, I, I know the answer to this question, because, you know, we are friends. Um, tell, tell them how, how you taught yourself. Or do you want the showbiz jazz hands version? Or, no, you want the real one, don't you? <laughs> I um, was so stupid uh, that I took a shatterproof, uh, you know the shatterproof rooms you get? The yeah. see-through ones and a lighter. <laughs> I burnt the ruler into a point and I shoved it down my throat between joints when I was younger. <laughs> Yeah, and there's twofold why that's so stupid. One is um, shatterproof rulers are anything but shatterproof. And the second is the first time I ever did it on stage. Well, it's a see-through ruler, so no one could see it. <laughs> yeah, and I, I feel it—it it does sort of bear underlining that this is legitimately very dangerous, isn't it? Yes. And you know, people who do what—I don't want to freak you out—people who do what you do have died doing it. Yes, they have. And uh, there used to be a lot. Sort of used to be quite a, um, used to be quite a lot of them, mm-hmm. and then it sort of died out quite literally. And um, yeah, um, what's that? I never actually. One of the things though is I never meant to be a performer. That was never the goal. I did kind of fall into it, and I sort of feel, looking back on it, it's quite bizarre to say that, but it's mm. you know. I just like shouting at people. <laughs> that, I mean, that was going to be my next question. Is I, I've known you, I think, some, from the early days of you of your performing career. Um, but I don't know how you got to that point. Yeah. So, you know, in, in a, a paragraph, what was your life from, from birth until then, until that, that moment with the book? Well, I think I was just very angry. Um, and I left home quite young. Um, <laughs> and I used to fly it. For a living, I used to give out flyers, not, not fringe style, I mean nightclubs, late nightclubs, and um, I think that was really my performance training, inadvertently my performance training, because 
I just got very good at um, being shouting, being lippy to people, and just sort of getting under people's skin. And I think that's been a theme for me over my career to date. Um, so, and, and I don't know, just no very, never really planned to perform. And then when I ended up performing, it, it sort of surprised me and took me a long time to take it seriously, which I still don't in a lot of ways. No, it would be a bad move to take it seriously. Mm. So, uh, I guess a few years after the mm. Shackproof Ruler, um, we have uh, Le Clique. Yes, that was quite a few years after. I mean, between there and then, I mean, I, my first friend was a month ago, and um, I came up here with a freak show called the Kamikaze Freak Show, which was actually um, an Edinburgh-based freak show. The dwarf used to hang heavyweights from his penis, and I'd sit on, his, sit on an office chair with volunteer and pull it along, and, and we'd pierce the Prince of Pain's back and pull another volunteer along in a wheelchair. And, and it was, that was around the whole sort of freak show revival. Um, and I then also did a lot of my training. I would busk in bars in the West End of London. It's, uh, Friday and Saturday, I'd get up on a bar and um, sort of swallow some of supper, as it were. Um, and I used to do other freak show things like walk on bars, bed and ales, um, piercing stuff, fire, all of that sort of thing. And then I just got really fed up with the one note reaction, which was just, ah, from an audience point of view, the whole point was to not necessarily gross them out, but to freak them out. Um, and then I fell in love with street performing. When I came up here, I saw some of the real masters at work, which both, well, Matt, Matt is one, um, but also we know there was a period, you probably know, if you were in the locals, you probably know that there was a time when the street wasn't just some guy wearing colourful clothes shouting at you about money for 45 minutes, but there were some wonderful clowns who used to play and play with the street as the theatre. So I fell in love with that, and then, as a result, sort of travelled around the world dying on my ass, <laughs> trying to learn that, and ended up in Australia, and ended up persuading um, the Spiegel tent that they really wanted me in their show, and then came to Edinburgh and we did the gig, and a lot happened from there, I'd yeah. say. Yeah. It's interesting you say that you were bored with the, the air reaction mm. because that, one of the things that I like about you is not your skills. I mean, I do like your skills, but what you've grown around them. Yeah. yeah. Because you started off, I think it's fair to say, just a person demonstrating a, yeah. a skill. And now you've got this lovely kind of... It's, it's Your own stage persona for me is kind of half cartoon and half, I guess, kind of... Jewish American comedian, kind of, <laughs> would that yeah. make any sense? Yeah, yeah, that does actually. Um, I normally wear rubber, by the way, so I usually look like a kind of, yeah, cartoon doll. Yeah. <laughs> in some ways. And um, yeah, I think it's much nicer to entertain. And if I could actually do, if I could be bothered to learn other stuff, which I am so lazy I can't, then I would love to ditch, in a way, ditch all of this stuff because uh, the people I uh, respect most are the ones who can make me laugh with nothing. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly most of your work. Well, I, I guess a lot of your work now is, is hosting shows. Yes, I and, love hosting. Yeah, and you're really good at hosting, and that's not dependent on a skill. I mean, you throw the skills in, yeah. but it's dependent on you being a, a really engaging, uh, intoxicating uh, on-stage character. Well, it allows you to be um, to not have material, and it also allows you to do anything, anything you want. In fact, that's what they want, is they want you to sort of fly... And, and that's what I love the most. Yeah. So I, I adore hosting shows, and I adore showing people acts they may not have seen. 
Yeah, it's nice, isn't it? Yes. To, to get people in and just say, trust me, you're going to see some fun stuff. Yes. I remember seeing you at the Roundhouse, and in one of your hosting sections, you were climbing on the ceiling. Yes. It's amazing. Yes, I am. Um, the Roundhouse in London is a large building, very high, and had this sort of great silent up the top, and of course, the rubber is quite sweaty, and at that point, I was drinking a lot of tequila during the shows, and um, so I was quite drunk. <laughs> Um, and so I was actually dripping sweat. A lot of people from quite high. I thought it was very funny. Deep into theatrical experience. Absolutely. So, um, influences? Well, what's funny is my influences. I, I don't know if you guys are buffs. Uh, I'm, I'm a complete comedy nerd. Um, and I sort of I went from freak show into, uh, I suppose, eccentrics into comics and went right through the ages. And I kind of got stuck in the early 40s and 50s. Um, and my influences are no way to what I do. So I adore Jack Benny and Dean Martin are my absolute favourites. So it's very nice to have Jack Benny on there. Dean Martin, I love straight men because I think, you know, no gags. But I, I think uh, the, the funny guy and the straight guy, the straight guy is just the funniest one for me, always. Mm. Funny guy is the annoying little one. The straight guy is the one that actually controls all the laughs. Dean Martin has very big hands. <laughs> He <laughs> <laughs> was a wonderful straight man. He um he could ad lib so well, and he, he played so loose and easy. It was it was gorgeous. Um, yes, and I know we've talked about the, the the Dean Martin TV show quite yes. often, where he famously didn't rehearse at all and didn't want to know what was on the show until he started taping it. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, I've got some wonderful footage of him corpsing the best professionals in the world. And I mean, I I love. I mean, I really am coming out. My favorite thing is to watch. Performers die. I, I love it. I think you can actually, uh, if a comedian is comfortable enough as a performer and if he's actually dying, it could be one of the funniest things you're ever going to watch. It's when they don't, when they hold, when they don't allow that death. You know, you can't give up, but you know, don't ignore the fact it's happening. And then we are in comedy gold, then, for me. I, I had a show today, this afternoon, <laughs> at the Foodie Festival where I had so many kids stealing my props and running off with them that I ended up shouting at a seven-year-old girl, I swear I will snap your neck like a dry twig. <laughs> and then I just left the show. <laughs> it's kind of, kind of fun. It's good to work it out, you know. My therapist is still in London. I'm in Edinburgh, so it's got to be done. But and Jack Benny, I mean, do, do any of you know Jack Benny? Yeah. Oh, God. He was... I preferred him on the TV to the radio. Um, and I preferred when it wasn't situational, when he was actually on stage. Um, but his ability to play with the silence and with, with the long, just the long silence of the takes and the sort of slow burn side of him, I just thought was wonderful. Like, I cry laughing. Mm. For me, it's funny ladies about, you know, Lucille Ball. See, that's again, it's a slapsticky stuff, and I think I'm quite sort of waggly, you know, cartoony. But my favourite yeah. thing is, is someone who can control a room and stand and just be. And so I suppose. In, although 40s and 50s, no doubt, is my area because the suits were good and because there was such a large live touring circuit, what I think ultimately is it's in, in the realm of clowning that I love. Yeah. So nerdy, guys, <laughs> sorry. But uh, I mean, it's sort of traced back to Commedia dell'arte for me, which is where you then have um, performers who understand their A to B to C and they know they've got X but, uh, tricks in their pocket um, and then they'll use them when necessary and they'll work the room. Yeah. You know, read the room. Nobody reads the fucking room anymore. Just sort of march on regardless. You know, so on the one hand I'm having a lovely interview with Matt, and on the other hand I'm just kind of going, ah, I could say something to or about you, and we could, but it's 
Thank you. So, no. Sorry, shall I? Yeah, so certainly, I mean, I, with, with your work, you know, as someone who, on paper, you are quite cartoony, you are quite big, you know, the way you dress, the way you hold yourself, what you do, but still, I've seen you get the biggest reactions just by a, a look. Yeah, yeah, and when I'm on form, not on form this year, guys. It's all right. It's funny as well, because I've learned something over the last couple of years, which is like, it's a marathon, not a, a sprint. And it's really helping out. So I'm actually, you realise you sort of ebb and flow, and careers are quite long, hopefully. Now I've said that, I think I've just shortened it. But. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't really have a massive amount of female role models. All of them tend to be um, drag queens. And I, took, I learned a lot. I worked in the fetish clubs and what have you quite a lot. And so I take a lot... I almost feel like drag queens stole um, where women are funny because we are a stereotype of us is you know catty, cutting, caring about what we wear, you know, exaggerating all that stuff. And although and that's now completely associated with drag queens, and well, fuck you, it's also associated with ladies, you know. And I don't have that. I mean, Marilyn Monroe is probably the only one female waggler. The rest of them are all men. Mm. So I. But it seems tricky now. Is there anyone sort of working at the moment that, that you feel is important to you? I adore Daniel Kitson. I, and, I mean, but, you know, who doesn't? Uh, and I love the fact that he doesn't uh, play by any rule. I also love the fact that when... So him and Dylan Moran, in a way, but when they, they just talk truth and manage to find it funny. Um, in terms of... I'm just going complete blank. Mm. That sounds terrible. No, it's okay. I do plan maybe next week at some time on the show to have uh, in this position Anthony Living Space. Ah, oh, Living Space. Well, yes. yes. There is one good clown still working on the street. Living Space. Yeah. Mm. Oh, I, we can't, we can't say go and see him at this venue at this time because he's a street performer. But if oh. you happen to pass by one of the boards, if you see the word Living Space, yeah. make time. You know. And he's actually on, he is really uh, alive this season. He's so, on full right now, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, so he's doing he two shows a day, and honestly, that's someone you will actually shit yourself laughing if you want. He kind of plays with the street as a theatre instead yeah. of imposing a show on it. So he got, yeah, that's exactly right. Does yeah. following, he follows people, he fo- verbally follows people, and then he's got a bunch of set gags which are just it's quite like that. He's it's it's as, if, as if all the things on a street, the street furniture, the people, anything that happens on the street it's as if they are the kind of extras in this film you know uh, he interacts with them in improvisatory and creative ways it's hard to describe which makes it worth seeing um, I'm trying to, still trying to get an interest I mean like uh, there's a duo in New York at the moment uh, Love the Daredevil Chickens oh I love them uh, yeah but it's, it's a bizarre thing because we, we do have a circuit it's just quite a bizarre cut up little circuit and it there is, is a, yeah we have a tight family of maybe 40 or 50 performers, all of whom are spread thinly over the world. Like the last yeah. time we worked together was in New Zealand. New Zealand. Yeah. Which is really odd. And that's the last time I saw the chickens. Yeah. And now they're in America and I'm in Scotland. And yeah. It's odd. But there's, there's a resurgence happening here at the moment. It's sort of popping up in Europe and all the rest of it. But it has to be not too self indulgent. And that's why one of the things I find is different between stand up and variety, or cabaret, or whatever you want to call it, is that stand-up has fallen into a glut of um, whatever's going on with it, and they essentially yeah. live and die by the silence. 
Like if you were just sat in silence for too long, you won't get bookings. Whereas I think cabaret variety, to some degree, are coasting on having playback, so you can't hear it in silence. Yeah, I'd say that's probably true. I think I think that it, it would be nice if a middle ground between stand-up and cabaret was because I've I've worked some comedy clubs and I oh my god I hate it so much. Stand-ups are because it's hard to, to understand, but the cabaret world it is quite new and it is what. The thing that's good about it is that it is very supportive. We are a family, I think, to an extent. I mean, that look. Um, and it is quite supportive. Um, which does, and another point you're going to make, is that it does sometimes encourage mediocrity. That is certainly true. But stand-up, the backstage, for me, the backstage of a stand-up club is just the most cynical, unpleasant, aggressive place on earth. Uh, eight white male comedians in skinny jeans with ironic T-shirts attempting to, you know... Outrate joke each other. Well, but um, that's not. But that's not necessarily. And yes, there is that unpleasant side. Um, but that's also the industry that they're at. The absolutely, they're, they're, absolutely. They are yeah. career comedians. Yes. And they're, most of them won't succeed. But I have to sort of an influence as a result of that. Joan Rivers is oh. fucking hilarious, right? Now she had a shitty life, man. She was on the peak. She had a, a TV series, all the rest of it, and then because of her husband uh, flipping out, she was like, it's. It's him or me, whatever, and they cancelled her show and just shat on her career. And, she, so she's on, and then her husband killed herself, himself. So she's on the skids of her ass, she's 56 years old, and she goes back on the open mic circuit in New York. And you kind of, the harder it is, the, the better you become, I think. So Absolutely. I don't think, I mean, I don't think stand-up seems particularly pleasant. But I also think that where, I don't know, I mean, I was at the show called The Clique, Gorgeous show, lovely and for a long time really lovely, but click, you know, and then it becomes exclusionary in the same way that it was inclusive to some, it was exclusionary to others, and I can't stand any of that. So I sort of end up just plonking on the outside of things, going, oh, you know, they're all chatting about that. And it just sort of doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, as we, we get to the end of this interview, um, where can we see you at the Fringe? Is there anywhere you would like people to see you at the Fringe? Well, do you know what? I'm on a really relaxed Fringe this year. <laughs> I am I'm doing a, a line-up show and I'm contractually not bothered about how many tickets get sold. It's all right. I'll get paid regardless. So <laughs> That's I'll, refreshing. Yeah, you know, it's fucking great. If, and I've had two days off. You know, I don't know. You got, yeah. so I would kill I'm, for two days off. <laughs> I'm having a fabulous... Do you know that during the festival, the, uh, the Scotsman Spa does a, a discount? Don't tell everyone. Doesn't discount. No, don't tell them. No, shh. No, no, they don't. No, they don't. They There's do. not a spa the just around the corner that is wonderful. Shut up, dude. Dude, seriously. I go there to get away from these people. I'm joking. Oh, I got... How look. many of you are Edinburgh? How many of you just sat for the French? Who the... F- the rest of you. Just lost. <laughs> they, just, they just nodded at me. Yeah, we are lost. We were in a dark room, we thought we'd sit down. There's seats. Well, I'm going to sell one of those espresso martini back there. And I will come with you. Yeah. Just quickly, though, I am always curious because people do tend to ask me those same questions. If you did have a. It's just helpful for me, seeing as I'm off in the game at home. Um, is there uh, any questions you would want to ask the source for? What's Yes, I do. Thanks for That's a good question. Yeah, it is. Yeah, never had a problem with the gag reflex. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's actually another female sword swallower in this venue at 12 midnight, I think. Fantastic girl. I met her in New York, in Coney Island. No, 
was New York uh, about six years ago. Stunner. And I've seen a photo of her. So this is the thing. I am a lazy performer, genuinely. I just a character around it and drag out my one-trick pony until I retire it. She does a sword swallow while hula hooping and balancing fucking a plate on the sword. <laughs> so you lucked out, man. <laughs> I just did a sword, haven't worn these shoes in a while, nearly tripped over and died in front of me. Because I've seen hula hooping as well. Twelve o'clock, yeah, yeah. And she's hot. <laughs> Have you worked with Steve Strange? I've never worked with Steve Strange or Stevie Star. The, the Star. Do you know, I've never worked with Stevie Star. I'm dying to. He regurgitates uh, a light bulb, he regurgitates a uh, cue ball, he regurgitates goldfish, and he also does this bit, which the one that amazes me is um, he does um, sugar and milk. So he necks yeah. the milk, does the sugar, and brings the, sh the sugar comes up dry. Yeah. Amazing. And there was an act, you've probably shown this act before, Ali something or other, way back uh, 40s, and he come up and dressed sort of Ali Baba style. And he would drink, he had this, this um, cardboard house on, on the stage as a prop, and then he would drink um, a shitload of water, like a pint of water, and then a shitload of kerosene. And then he would uh, have a torch and he would blow the kerosene out, so the kerosene comes and it went down, you know what I mean? Like, that's got to be unhealthy, but... And he would blow the kerosene, set the, the little house on fire, kerosene just keep coming, just... And then... The water would come out and you'd put it out. Oh. It's amazing. That's nice. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I have worked with Stevie Starr. Stevie Starr, when I worked with him, um, finished his act by, he had a, a, a glass tumbler with some water in it and a goldfish and would do the goldfish and then bring it up and he would come off stage going, fucking fish shit. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I love speciality acts and I think it's tricky. Um, there, there used to be some amazing ones, like there was an act, you know, the banana. Man. He used to come on stage and he had this big black coat and weird fake black moustache and eyebrows and he would just basically, to music, pull shit out of his coat. And this is when you're working big stages. And by the end of this eight minute act, the entire stage was covered with tables, chairs, easels, <laughs> paint, you know, like you name it, it just all come out of his coat. And it, I'd love to see that sort of thing happening, but it's, it's just the circuit doesn't exist for that to happen anymore. Yeah, no. yeah. My, my favourite was the Iceman, you know the Iceman? I, I always talk about the Iceman on, on this podcast. Um, he used to come on and do a 20 minute spot, he would come on stage wearing a suit and a bandage around his head, that was his costume, with a massive block of real ice. And he would come on stage and go, okay, gonna melt the ice. <laughs> and he just... He'd rub it, he'd hold it over a candle on the table. And For 20 minutes? Yeah, and it would not melt. He'd just go off with this big... He had an arrangement with restaurants around the West End that would save him big blocks of ice. It was so great. It was... Just remember one gig I am doing that I wouldn't mind people coming to. Hey! Um, which is... I thought you might have worked the Malcolm Hardy. Perfect. <laughs> it sounds like. Yeah, uh, so I'm hosting yeah. the Malcolm Hardy Awards. I don't know if any of you are familiar with them, yes. but they are brilliant and they'll be nice and chaotic. And I'll be doing a bunch of new stuff and it'll be just mad. I'm also performing that. Night. He is. Yeah. And, and, but it's just uh, the goal is to just make it as nutsy as possible. So my favourite thing to watch and be part of is absolute chaos that then gets reined in where possible. When, when needed. Like if it's getting boring, rein it in. If not, let them run at the wall really hard. <laughs> I think on that note, we'll wrap it up. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, please give your thanks to Mr. Hay.
And that's it for this episode of The Varieties. We're releasing a bunch of shows during the Fringe, so keep checking iTunes for new episodes. And as always, if you like what you hear, leave a review. It really helps. We're running the shows at the Voodoo Rooms Ballroom at 8.15 every single day except Monday until the 26th. And my new one-man show, Vaudeville Schmuck, is at the same venue at 5.45. It'll be great to see you there, but until then, that was your Voodoo Varieties. Voodoo Varieties.